Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Coming to you... Also, I think maybe from New York City, I'm just going to guess here, is a new guest to our show, Stephen Wertheim of Columbia, of the Quincy Institute, of a book called um, uh, Tomorrow the World, some recent good articles. Stephen, are you in New York City? I am in Washington, D.C. for my sins. Washington, D.C. Well, you're not alone in Washington, D.C. for your sins. Rosa Brooks is also in Washington, D.C. for her sins. Hi, Rosa. I'm not in Washington, D.C., David. I'm in I'm in sin-free Alexandria, Virginia. You know, Alexandria, Virginia used to be part of Washington, D.C. You're aware of that, right? I'm not only am I aware of that, um, but uh, only a few blocks from my house, there is a stone marker locked inside a metal fence, like a little cage. Um, like a child detained by ice, um, and that oh, stone marker, which is which is captive, turns out to be one of the original uh, boundary markers of the District of Columbia before Virginia angrily took back its hunk its hunk of D.C. I don't know why the poor little stone marker is caged like that, and I actually have thought often of launching a a campaign to free the rock, but but um, but yes, so. I, I, my house was never in DC, but a block for me, it would have been. And somebody okay. needs to take up the cause of the caged stone markers. Thanks for that clarification, Rosa. I'm sure all of our listeners are deeply interested. <laughs> uh, also in Washington, DC, we've got uh, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. How are you? I'm good. And I'm just envying the fact that Rosa has representation for the taxation she pays. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't blame you. And. I- our British colleague is demanding that. I am statehood for the District of Columbia. I'm well behind it. Well, remember, all the people that originally demanded that were uh, British citizens to begin with, too. Um, And uh, uh, then, of course, you just heard from out in uh, California, uh, the, the prosperous neighboring country to the United States. We have Corey Shockey. How are you today, Corey? I am bisected by light. Yeah, you are. For those who would be following this on Zoom, you would see that, as Rosa pointed out moments before we started, the gleam off of Corey's tiara of optimism is especially shiny uh, in these these moments after the Thanksgiving holiday. Um, well, let's let's talk about you know how 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 transmittable that optimism is. Um, I, I was interested, Stephen, you had an article in Foreign Policy talking about how the world's not going to go back to the way it was for Joe Biden and probably shouldn't. 
uh, you've written about um, the enterprise of, of kind of a America's decision to, to run the world. But it seems to me that after two decades of the 21st century in which for the most part, our foreign policy has taken steps backward and that, that old idea of what we were and our role in the world um, seems to have been diminished one way or another under three different presidents. Um, we're looking for new ideas. Uh, and so my first question is, do you agree? And my second question is, what do you think they're going to look like? I do think that many people are looking for new ideas in the public and in the so-called deep state. But I worry that um, when a lot of people, including some of those around President-elect Biden, talk about new ideas, it's about accepting that the unipolar moment is over from the 1990s. I don't think we have a choice but to accept that. But to continue to cling to as much U.S. military dominance as possible in conditions that clearly have changed. And I think that that impulse is not going to be enough to change our foreign policy in the way it needs to be, uh, or to meet what I think is a significant crisis of legitimacy of U.S. global leadership at home that uh, Donald Trump's election exposed and that I think continues despite the kind of restorationist politics on which uh, the president-elect campaigned. Um, Ed, you you were actually the one who said, you know, we should really have Stephen on. Um, and uh, of course, I follow your advice, uh, uh, as, I, as I do Corey and Rose's advice. Um, what was it about what Stephen is saying that resonated with you? Well, I think, I mean, uh, the, the Quincy Institute, which Stephen uh, co-founded, founded, um, I'm, I'm not yes, quite co-founded. sure. Yes, uh, co-founded. Co-founded um, uh, uh, 18 months ago. Um, it feels like ago. a lot more than that, but the thing actually launched a year ago. A year ago. That, that, that's roughly what I thought. I think um, it's, a, it's a very, very good idea to challenge sort of axiomat axiomatic um perceptions in how foreign policy is conducted, that the world has changed a lot around us, that for arguably since the presidency of George Bush Sr., we've not really had truly smart American foreign policy. Um, it's, it's, it's always been reflexively um, based on the idea that sort of golden arches theory idea that the world is um, going to become more and more like us. And to the extent that it's not going to be, then, you know, we will think in military terms very, very often. Um, and I think that that's passed its sell-by date, um, objectively speaking, as, as, as um, a reflexive way of approaching the world. But I'm not sure it's passed its sell-by date in terms of how Washington thinks. And so I think the Quincy Institute and Stephen and others are a very, very useful and much needed um, injection into the debate, particularly at this time, as a new administration is being formed. And I've seen you, uh, uh, David, and I think Corey, also saying um, that they're very impressed with Biden's selections so far. So am I. I think, uh, I think in particular, Jake Sullivan is, is capable of strategic rethinking. 
Um, but I think Tony Blinken, you know, uh, I'm sure he's going to get pilloried by the left for having been involved in some very unwise wars of choice. But I think he's um, an intelligent person who's capable of learning. I, I just think that the, the risk of Biden drifting back into a restorationist um, mindset given all the hardware and the way the furniture is is set up in this town is very, very high. And that this debate needs to be a robust one. Um, and uh, I, I hope it's going to happen. Um, Corey, I'm interested, of course, in, in what you think of all of this. Um, Stephen made reference to the unilateralist uh, moment or the unilateral moment, which, I, you know, I think could be argued didn't really actually exist. It was more like the unilateral um, illusion uh, because we had China rising throughout that time. We had other powers arising throughout that time. And um, the, the, the world doesn't really have any appetite for a unilateral uh, uh, moment or a, or a hyper power as the French called us back then. And, you know, Ed makes reference to something that, that I've seen a lot in different kinds of articles. There's one by Tom Friedman in the Times uh, uh, just today, I guess, um, about the Iran deal, where there's there's this kind of sense of well, let's reset. But but you know, I get the question. You know, I sort of like reset to what? Um, you know, <laughs> what was it that was working so well that we need to reset to? But what's what's your view? There's a whole lot that's working well and that deserves resetting to. I agree with Ed that. Uh, this is an important debate for us to have, but I could not disagree more vehemently with Stephen's perspective on it, that the international order that the United States and allied countries attempted to create out of the ashes of World War II was designed in order to create buffers against disaster and incentives for international cooperation. And it's worked pretty well. It hasn't worked completely. It hasn't worked everywhere. It hasn't, it has failed in all sorts of ways, but I still don't see a better alternative. And the notion that the United States can stop uh, advocating for leaning forward into even policing this international order just means it will crumble. The, the notion that if we stop, um, you know, if the United States stops being such a belligerent, hypocritical, ideological power and other better, more deserving countries will band together and create a fostering international order, I just don't see that working. And I actually think the rise of China is going to do more to restore affection for the international order that the US and allies created, because as awful as it is, it's a way better bargain than the alternatives. It's not just for the United States, but also for other countries, which is why they're pleading with us to um, be more like any of the previous American presidents between 1945 and uh, 2016. There is even crazily enough affection for the George W. Bush administration 
among some of American allies because at least they had a theory of uh, what the international order should be and how we should uh, create and foster it. So I come down on the other side from Ed and Stephen on this one. Well, first of all, you do it in a very uh, civil and charming way, and 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 which is what we're all about here. Uh, and I do want to give Stephen a chance to respond to it, but I'd like to get to Rosa first. I, I, you know, in my typical Pollyanna-ish, you know, style here, listening to all of this, I'm inclined to say, well, I I, I think everybody's right to some degree here. Um, having an international order works. Um, having the one that worked in 1945 is probably not the one that you want to have in 2020. Okay, but wait, 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 wait a second. Um, the notion that it was fixed, trapped like a dragonfly in amber and didn't evolve and didn't uh, address new challenges, I think is unfair. Well, it may be, but, but I was asking a question and therefore obligated to oversimplify. Um, uh, and I think we should we should we should certainly come back to that because you know I think how it evolved is 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 important. But Rosa, you know I I'm I'm just getting to you. You know I've had a number of conversations over the years with with Jake Sullivan, for example, um, uh, about this issue of you know sort of how do you reinvent the international order? How do you remake it? Whether it's 1.1 or 2.0. Is this the moment to do that? Um, and um, just wondering where you come out on, on all these various things. Yeah, I, I think this is the moment to do that. I do think we need to reinvent it. I mean, I, and I, I agree with you, David, I'm right smack in that unsatisfa unsatisfactory, irritating, you're both at least a little bit right position. Um, but, but so, so I, I, think, I think two things are equally true. And I think I just held up like four fingers, but what I meant was two. <laughs> <laughs> um, my kids are now back home and uh, my house has suddenly become noisier and more distracting, which is why those of you watching on video see that I just moved to a different room. Um, um, here are the two things that are true simultaneously. You know, one is that, well, okay, I am gonna make it three things. One, one is that the US has historically been uh, full of itself beyond its ability and will to actually benefit the entire rest of the world and not just itself, um, even though sometimes in the goal, with the goal of benefiting itself, it ended up hurting itself. That's one thing that's true. Um, two is that uh, our existing international institutions are creaky and inadequate for the tasks that we are currently facing collectively, not just the United States, but globally, pandemics, climate change, you name it. Um, and uh, three is that the US, even no matter how much anyone, American or otherwise, wishes it were irrelevant and would go away and leave the stage to others, we do not currently have others who seem willing or able to, to play the role the US has played or play it in a way that is even as constructive as the US uh, recognizing that the US role has not always been as constructive as our myth, as our myth making would have us believe, um, which is to say that when we say, gosh, why is the US, why should the US be the indispensable nation? Um, part of the answer to that, um, and you know, is that 
there's nobody else uh, willing or able to play the convening role, the leadership role that the US has played in the last few decades. There's nobody else who wants to. It's not even clear that China wants to, uh, nor is it clear that China, even if it wanted to, which I don't actually think it does, um, would, would not be even worse than the US on a lot of the sort of core issues that I think all of us here care about. The European states, which I think are much closer to the US on a lot of core normative issues, um, not only do they largely not particularly want to, but they don't really currently have the ability to do so, even though they may hope and wish, and we may hope and wish that in some period of time they will. The same, the same goes for other partners and allies in other parts of the world outside of Europe. So, so I think that we're, we're stuck with these realities and they should push us towards both a, an appropriate modesty about the US role and the US ability to shape the world. Um, we should be even more modest after four years of Trump because we've so much damage has been done. There's just gonna be a tremendous amount of repair work uh, and our good intentions uh, are gonna be greeted with profound skepticism by allies and partners. Uh, and some snickering behind our backs, no doubt. Um, so, so you know, we have we have to be, I think, really, really humble. We have to really, really find a way to urge allies and partners to step up, not in the manner that Trump thought was going to be effective by just you know being nasty to them and making threats. That didn't work too well. But but at the same time, uh, you know, by saying, hey perhaps not in so many words, but saying, hey, we are a declining power. You know, you have seen that. You can't count on us. We wanna be here. We wanna be helpful. We wanna be effective. We aren't always able to do that. How can we help you build your capacity, et cetera? Uh, and it is certainly a time where we, we you know, I, I think people need to be doing every essay contest possible for the smart youngsters at graduate IR grad programs and all over the place saying, Hey, we want your ideas. How do we reinvent the international order? Um, because everybody's got, everybody says that all the time. I, I plead guilty too to saying that all the time. Very few of us have ideas that are realistic for exactly how we do that. Once you start pushing most of us, we start, we start sort of muttering things about, well, security, you know, uh, security council reform and other things that while, you know, semi-useful in a sort of moving the deck chairs kind of way are, completely inadequate to the scope of the challenges we're facing. Okay, Stephen, you've heard a number of responses to all of all of this. What, 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 are, what are your reactions? I'll try to make about two points and following Rose's precedent, I'll hold up about 10 fingers. Okay. So That's if we go, go back, if we go back to the construction of the US-led world order, circa World War II, what we find is that American officials and post-war planners departed from America's traditional aversion to military entanglements in Europe and Asia reluctantly, and they decided to make that fateful choice to install the United States as the premier military power because they feared that totalitarian conquerors otherwise would be in command of Europe and Asia. And that's what my book shows. Uh, Tomorrow the World, I hasten to add. Publicists would kill me if I don't say that. 
But so they had a specific purpose. And I think if the same kind of people acting creatively and in response to the conditions, the international and domestic conditions around them had been sitting down with a clean slate after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, they would have come to a very different conclusion, a conclusion that because the specter of totalitarian conquest is so far-fetched, so remote, the United States had an opportunity to pull back with its military forces instead of doing what it did, which is in fact, pursue greater global preeminence than ever. And I think what that has done, we've seen Republican presidents, Democratic presidents, some responsible figures in the White House, some reckless decision makers in the White House. We've seen a lot over three decades. But what we've seen for sure is that the pursuit of military preeminence in the absence of credible totalitarian conquerors has brought endless war upon us. And that has been corrosive, I think, to our security interests. I think it has created unnecessary antagonisms and constantly inflated the threats that America faces. It's also undermined our democracy as we've acquired a globe spanning array of adversaries for a country that fundamentally can be secure if it wants to be. We've got two oceans, we've got uh, weak and friendly neighbors to the North and South, we've got nuclear deterrence, and yet it seems all the time as though the United States is the most constrained actor that there is. How can that possibly be? The reason it is the case is that we continue to act as though either the United States is everywhere and tries to maintain as much dominance as possible in every region of the world, or the world goes to hell, or we're isolationist and who knows what might happen. What might happen if the United States were to make responsible efforts to, to pull back, I think, is that the world order would actually strengthen. The United States would certainly become more secure. Uh, there are different challenges depending on the region, and we can talk about those. But what I think we really cannot do is act as though there are no possible circumstances in which the United States can ever countenance prudent retrenchment of its positions in the world. That is just going to set us up for, I fear, a greater confrontation in the future. And so for me, the rise of China throws up a whole set of very serious issues. And, and I think it's clearly much more rational for us to be to be focused on that than on the political and military conflicts of the Middle East, though, of course, the United States, despite that recognition increasingly in Washington, hasn't managed to extricate itself from any of the conflicts of the Middle East. But the rise of China gives me a reason uh, to retrench, because I really don't want to see World War III. And while I agree with Rosa that we should be more humble and we should want our partners and allies to uh, take up as much of the burden as possible, we are not providing the incentives when we decide to spend more than the next uh, 10 uh, militaries in the world combined. And we put ourselves constantly on the front lines uh, of every potential conflict. We simply will be stuck in the same trap that actually President Trump affirmed uh, in his, despite bashing allies in a you know, more uh, fulsome way than other presidents, he continued the pattern of expanding US military commitments, expanding 
defense spending, proclaiming in his words that our military dominance should be unquestioned uh, and just calling for more burden sharing. And of course, that is not going to provide any significant change to US partners and allies. So I'm gonna go out of the order that I was going on here. Um, I have a question for Ed, but I'd like to come to it in a second. Corey, I, I just can imagine you have some response to, to what Stephen just said. And so I thought, let's go to that and then I'll go to Ed. Sure. Uh, so I think the reason that for the better part of 70 years, American presidents have continued a policy of international engagement, providing security guarantees to countries, uh, in particular to countries in the, that are uh, liberal and democratic in the relationship between a public and its government, or that we believed we could pull that direction comes from a fundamental belief that democratic countries make the international order more peaceful. There's a lot of fun dusting up of scholarship about the circumstances in which that is true. Um, but, but as a, a driver of American foreign policy, that has been accepted for the last 70 years. And what Stephen and other serious scholars are doing is saying, we ought to investigate that proposition. Um, and I think it's true, we ought to investigate that proposition. The challenge is uh, that what they posit, what Stephen just posited, the world would be safer without American security guarantees to all these countries is not a proposition any American other than Donald Trump, and as Stephen says, Donald Trump's back and forth on it, has ever wanted to risk because that's the long shadow of the rise of totalitarianism in Europe and Asia in the 1930s. You didn't have stabilizing agreements that created a sense of common security that prevented security dilemmas of rapid armament, right? I mean, what's the most important force for preventing nuclear proliferation? It's having an American security guarantee, right? So that's the argument for creating a system that makes people feel safe and that gives wide buffers against the emergence of something that I think Stephen and I both are, are afraid of, but we have a different risk assessment of the likelihood. So the example Stephen uses is we shouldn't have expanded NATO in the 1990s, but Poland and the Baltic states had a very urgent recent belief that totalitarianism A, still existed in Russia and B was gonna come roaring back in Europe unless we protected newly democratic countries from Russian influence. And Ukraine, Georgia um, actually uh, are pretty strong supports for the concern that the Baltic states and Europe had, which is if they didn't have a US security guarantee, if we didn't pull them into the Western framework, that they would be vulnerable 
should change occur in Russia, change did occur in Russia, and other countries that are not in NATO are suffering as a result of it. So Ed, I, you know, I, I heard your earlier plea for taxation with representation in DC, and I recognize that you're a DC um, resident, but you're also a man of the world who has lived in a, in a bunch of places um, and, and writes for a publication that's based someplace else. What do you think our allies might make of this argument right now? What do you think, you know, the, the argument essentially, you know, is the U.S. the indispensable nation? Are U.S. security guarantees the linchpin of global stability? Or is there another way to do it? What, where, 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 well, if they were to hear this, particularly after the past 20 years, uh, and as they are hearing it, where do, where do you think they come out? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, it, it partly depends which ally you're talking about. So let's take two very leading ones, France and Germany. Um, now, the Germans are the most delighted of any um, of any of America's allies with, with Biden's um, victory, because they do see him as restorationist. They do see him as restoring a traditional American pro-NATO um, role um, and being much more present and friendly in Europe and with European allies. Uh, Macron in France is a little bit more ambivalent because he's very much trying to drive a, a European strategic autonomy um, argument that there's more of a, a European military identity. And this kind of upsets that trajectory. Trump is very useful to that argument. Um, I think both countries, though, would like to see the kind of America that, um, that we had when I mentioned this earlier with George Bush Sr., not the kind of America that we had with George Bush Jr. Um, so the, the answer to your question partly depends on what kind of America is coming back. If it's, if it's a, a prudent and skillful global leader, then I think it would be welcomed with open arms. If it is, um, if it is a sort of break the crockery um, kind of um, American global leader, they would probably rather rather see isolationism. So, I mean, it really depends on the manner in which the Biden administration conducts itself. Um, you know, I, I, don't, um, I don't think, from my personal point of view, I don't think that the United States, and this is in response to Corey, should withdraw security guarantees from its allies. I think that's an invaluable um, role, and I think America should retain a military um, I'm certainly not looking for isolationism, but I am looking to demilitarize America's diplomacy and how it conducts and views the world. Um, because I think, um, and this is where I strongly agree with Stephen, um, when you've got all this stuff, all this equipment, all this hardware, um, you, tend to, you tend to want to use it and it can be very self-defeating. And I think, you know, the Iraq war is obviously a case in point, but as time goes on, as America's relative power um, dilutes and declines, um, and as China ch poses more of a challenge, the cost to that kind of blunder is going to rise. Um, and so what I, what I want to see, what I hope the Biden people and Jake Sullivan and others are debating is, that, is an America that is back um, and that hopes to shape the new multilateralism of the 21st century and work with allies to deal with China um, but that an America that doesn't have these um, flattening hegemonic um, instincts that, that um, 
that have done so much damage um, uh, in incidents like the Iraq war. So, Rosa, I just want to go around. I would like to ask each one of you a similar question. I think there are a number of things that all five of us would stipulate ought to be part of, you know, the American uh, sort of uh, or the you know, global order of the of the rest of the century or American internationalism of the rest of the century, you know, whether it's uh, promoting democracy, by the way, at home and abroad, or it's promoting the rule of law, or it's building useful institutions um, where we need to have useful institutions uh, and revamping institutions that are faltering. You know, I mean, we could all make a list of things that we, we sort of agree on. But I, what I'm really interested in is what needs to change. But, you know, what is, how does International Order 2.0 differ from the one that evolved, I take Corey's point, from 1945 onward? Um, uh, how is it different or should it be different going forward? Just you pick. One or two or three things, uh, each of you, starting with you, Rosa. Well, I actually want to start, though, by going to that list of things that you you said, well, I assume we all agree on, because the devil's in the details, right? Democracy promotion, just to, to pick the, your first one as an example. I think we probably all do agree that at the level of saying, hey, here are our values, we believe these values are important. We're going to call it out if other countries don't live up to these values. Obviously, we've done a pretty crappy job of living up to them ourselves lately. We're working on improving our democracy because as the last few elections have made it glaringly clear, there are both structural democratic deficits and sort of cultural democratic deficits in our own country. And we're working on that. Um, and you know, if if you're Belarus or whatever, and you you have a leader who is staying in power through blatantly undemocratic means, we're going to call it out, and potentially we're you know potentially uh, going to act based on that those criticisms in terms of sanctions, etc. That's really different from some of the way, for instance, the George W. Bush administration interpreted democracy promotion. Um, which was much more aggressive and and in some cases involved regime change, et cetera. Um, so so I, and I think the same is very much true of phrases like the rule of law. In fact, I wrote a book about this once. Um, you know, it, it, it's such a broad blanket phrase, you know, who could possibly dislike the rule of law, but people use it to mean quite radically different things. And that becomes part of the problem. Um, when the Chinese talk about rule of law, they mean something really different than what any of us mean. And when we talk about rule of law, my guess is that if we started pushing, we would each mean slightly different things by it. So, 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 I, so I actually, I'm not sure it's useful to talk about the consensus at that level of generality, because I think it may mask a substantial disagreements. Um, that being said, I, I you know, the, the, the interesting thing about sort of the evolution of international institutions and, and international law in the post-World War II period is that the institutions have been relatively frozen to in a way that replicates sort of the immediate post-World War II power structure. Law has actually evolved much more interestingly in ways that do reflect 
the increasing multipolarity of the world, the increasing willingness to view things such as democracy as human rights or self-determination as human rights, the increasing willingness to think about cultural rights, to think about uh, cross-border relationships and alliances, but that law is largely unenforced and some of it still takes the form of so-called soft law. So we, we, also, we also sort of have a sort of a, a kind of interesting gap between the normative world and the, the, real, the sort of actual practical world out there as, as it is understood by international lawyers and the, the world as it is out there for real versus the post-World War, War II world as reflected in, in institutions. Um, so one interesting place to start might be to see, you know, if we took seriously international legal norms, that in itself would potentially lead to some significant changes in the shape of our international institutions. Um, another way to go at it, and I, I actually, uh, you know, if if I were, if I were, say, for instance, a bunch of U.S. partners and allies, uh, you know. I would be saying, hey, United States, guess what? You know, we're having a big power. It's not going to be the Munich conference or the whatever, any of the existing fancy schmancy things, but we're going to have a big power where we're going to start talking about, you know, what, what, what do institutions look like um, or need to look like if we were starting from scratch? I would be sponsoring those essay contests to sort of get some great ideas on the table and then building building conversations around, hey, is this viable, is that viable? I would be saying um, one of the conversations that we need to be having is if we were occupying a world in which the US couldn't or wouldn't or we all thought shouldn't play the role of global cop, um, what would other states need to do to step up? How would institutions need to change? And I don't know the answers to those questions, um, but I don't think we have actually even had the conversation in a terribly serious way. And I think for that conversation to get serious, it has to be driven by states because, you know, for all we all talk all the time about the increasing importance of non-state actors, of transnational networks, positive and negative, um, we still live in a world where the prime movers for international laws and institutions are states. Doesn't mean the conversation should be exclusively among states, but I think that until a sizable group of powerful states shows in a serious way that they're committed to having those, to sponsoring those conversations, um, I don't think that they'll happen in a way that makes, that has any ability to get any real traction. Okay, we've got maybe 10 minutes here. So if we, we get to the sort of the, the two three minute versions of these answers, that would be a good thing. Um, uh, Stephen. I very much like uh, everything Rosa just laid out. And it makes me think that um, it would be so wonderful for the incoming Biden administration to say, I have such respect for US partners and allies that the United States is going to reverse its longstanding posture uh, in which the United States has stifled the initiative of its allies uh, and welcome efforts by the French government, by the South Korean government and others to take more ownership of and initiative in decisions about their own security. In the name of alliances, too many people in Washington uh, have actually advocated the United States stifling the initiative of, let's say, Europeans to organize a common European security 
or in very recent memory, the South Korean government to try to reach uh, peace on the Korean peninsula with the North. And the United States has actually stood in the way. So that's one thing I'd like to see the United States uh, start to do, open up that conversation in a genuine way. I also think the United States should sponsor new initiatives on the major threats that I see affecting the American people where they live and work. And because these threats are planetary and transnational, they are important to the world. Climate change and pandemic disease are at the top of my list. And I would add building a more uh, prosperous and equitable global economy to that as well. But that requires, and I think this is crucial, wide cooperation. What stands in the way of that kind of cooperation is a US military role where we start out our foreign policy by dividing the world into allies and implicitly enemies. We say that about a third of the countries on earth are US protectorates. And the message that sends to the rest of the world is, we see you as a potential threat and we're gonna deter you. And that means potentially go to war with you over X, Y, and Z. I don't think that that is the way, if we were designing things from scratch to fit the conditions of the 21st century, I don't think many of us would come up with that solution uh, for US security or for international order. Corey. I, um, the one thing I would change is I would dramatically strengthen our non-military levers of foreign policy. The people in the Treasury Department who track money, America's diplomats, people who engage civil society, holding hands with uh, NGOs, uh, because part of the reason the American military plays such an outsized role in our foreign policy is because we don't lavish nearly the amount of creativity, attention, or money that uh, on these other elements. And you guys know my favorite example of genius American foreign policy on the cheap from the last 20 years. And that's Governor Huntsman when ambassador in Beijing putting a, on the roof of the US embassy, putting an air quality meter and tweeting out the air quality index in Beijing, which forced the Chinese government into accountability with its own public. And it was a great thing and we need to do more of that because creativity is our actual superpower and what we ought to be leading with in our policies. I like it. I, I like it. Ed. Um, I would, you know, emphasize um, something Rosa said is rebuild democracy at home. Um, and the Biden campaign, you know, uh, Biden himself have placed great emphasis on that. Um, uh, chances of it getting enacted with a Republican Senate are obviously much slimmer than John Lewis bill, etc. But it is hugely important that America's ability to influence others and, and its power of persuasion is very strongly linked. And I don't know, I don't know whether America recognizes this to the extent that it, it, it should do, but it's very strongly linked with the world's perception of America's internal democratic functioning. And that's taken a really terrible blow and simply defeating Trump is not 
nearly enough. It's clearly unnecessary, but it's not anywhere close to being a sufficient condition. So emphasizing that one thing I would do. Second, picking up a little bit on what Corey said on the non-military side, clearly the game nowadays is going to be um, with allies and with potential adversaries like China, is going to be understanding um, how to create a digitally acceptable world, uh, one, one in which it, it, it isn't bifurcated, or if it is bifurcated, then it's between China and everybody else. And working with Europe on things like digital policy, but also tax evasion, money laundering, corruption, kleptocracy, I think these are weapons that the Putins of this world would fear a lot more than hypersonic missiles. Um, and the third, and this is a sort of very general point, is to um, talk less and listen more. Um, you know, I first moved here, I was working for Larry Summers in the 90s when, um, when uh, uh, America really did sort of follow the Golden Arches doctrine and really did believe it was simply a case of telling others how to get to where we are. Um, and there wouldn't really be too many differences. Um, everybody wanted to be American. That's not the case. Humans are sticky, they're awkward, they're different. That's part of the wonderful diversity of the world. And that's not gonna change. Um, and I think America in sort of journalistic terms needs to drop its column for a while and do a bit of reporting um, on the world and, and, and less columnizing. And I think that's actually a very powerful tool of diplomacy. Listening is very flattering. When, when you listen to people, they like you. Um, and so I think if America could just sort of consciously do more of that, it would it would pack a much bigger punch than might sort of initially you might think. You know, I think these are all great points and I think it's a great discussion. And one of the things that has me very encouraged about the incoming Biden team, who I know extremely well, the, the people who are in the appointed positions, is that this is the kind of thing they think about. Uh, these are the kind of issues they grapple about. They are not new to these um, uh, issues. If I could add one one thing, just listening to you, um, it is that framing helps. And very often when we have conversations about these kind of issues, we either define them in terms of post-X, like post-war period. We, you know, we come out of World War II, we learn the lessons of World War II and we apply them. Or we come out of the Cold War, post-Cold War period, we learn the lessons of Cold War, we, we apply them. Uh, of course, what happened when we came out of World War II was, uh, and we started setting this up, there was something in our mind, and that is we were concerned about the emergence of the Cold War. And it was a very security-centric idea of the world because of World War II, because of uh, of the looming Cold War. Uh, and as we look forward and we ask ourselves, what are we in the pre-phase of? What is the world we're entering into now? Uh, we might ask ourselves whether, and just as, as all of you have talked about, um, a greater emphasis on a non-security-driven, non-emergency uh, military response-driven, more civilly normative kind of a framework works. Uh, and, and, and whether that's saying we're actually gonna follow the rule of law or whether it's those superpowers Corey was talking about, um, uh, whether it's, and, and, and also frankly, 
how it defines the role of the United States in a shift away from uh, hyperpower or, you know, in 1946, half of all world trade went through the United States. We were by far the dominant power to being a partner power. How do you lead as a member of a group? Uh, that's, that's another reframing that I think we need to get to. Uh, but conversations like this are, are beginning. This is going to go on for a long time. Hopefully, um, uh, this administration will begin some of that, and we will be able to return to it. Uh, it is very nice, after four years, to be able to return to a conversation that is policy-oriented, not personality-oriented, um, and is future-oriented and is not, oh, my God, what happened five seconds ago-oriented. So... It's a step in the right direction. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Uh, Tomorrow the World is the book, which um, you, you want certainly mentioned. Um, and uh, I hope you'll come back. Uh, I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me. And apologies to those who, unbeknownst to me, can see this on video and are looking at my closet. Your closet is fantastic. But you're not in the closet. You, you're out. You're visibly out of the closet. There's a coming out of the closet of the deep state joke in here somewhere. I can't quite figure it out. I'm working. I, I, I'm working. I, well, keep keep working on it. We deep state if jokes the are something. Doors open. I think we could say the closet still beckons, but um... the closet also can't be closed because of my pandemic hoarding. So maybe that <laughs> is there something there? I don't know. I, well, getting better. I I I, I don't know. Um, uh, so anyway, right come back and we'll take the look at the, at the evolution of your of your closet. And also Corey's backyard is something I want to see more of. <laughs> it's very it's very beautiful. And to those of us here in New York, very appealing. Uh, so thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, everybody to list, for listening. And uh, come back and join us again later in the week. And if you want to know what else we're doing, go to the DSRnetwork.com. Lots more info there. In the meantime, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.